Welcome to the Cannabis Cultivation and Science Podcast. I'm your host, Tad Hussey of Kiss Organics. This is the podcast where we discuss the cutting edge of organic growing from a science-based perspective and draw on top experts from around the industry to share their wisdom and knowledge. My guest this week is David Montgomery. David studied geology at Stanford University before earning his PhD in geomorphology at UC Berkeley. He teaches at the University of Washington where he studies the evolution of topography and how geological processes shape landscapes and influence ecological systems. He loved maps as a kid and now writes about the relationship of people to their environment and other things that interest him. In 2008, he was named a MacArthur Fellow. He lives with his wife Anne in Seattle, Washington. He's written multiple books, but the ones most interesting to gardeners are Dirt, The Erosion of Civilizations, The Hidden Half of Nature, and Growing a Revolution, Bringing Our Soils Back to Life. In Dirt, The Erosion of Civilizations, he explores the compelling idea that we are and have long been using up Earth's soil. Once bare of protective vegetation and exposed to wind and rain, cultivated soils erode bit by bit, slowly enough to be ignored in a single lifetime, but fast enough over centuries to limit the lifespan of civilizations. A rich mix of history, archaeology, and geology, Dirt traces the role of soil use and abuse in the history of Mesopotamia, ancient Greece, the Roman Empire, China, European colonialism, Central America, and the American push westward. We see how soil has shaped us and how we have shaped soil as society after society has risen, prospered, and plowed through a natural endowment of fertile dirt. David Montgomery sees in the recent rise of organic and no-till farming the hope for a new agricultural revolution that might help us avoid the fate of previous civilizations. In The Hidden Half of Nature, which I will discuss in more detail with his wife Anne Beclay, who is a co-author and also a biologist, is a riveting exploration of how microbes are transforming the way we see nature and ourselves, and could revolutionize agriculture and medicine. And in his most recent book, Growing a Revolution, David introduces us to farmers around the world at the heart of the brewing soil health revolution that could help bring humanity's ailing soil back to life remarkably fast. Growing a Revolution draws on visits to farms in the industrialized world and developing world to show that a new combination of farming practices can deliver innovative, cost-effective solutions to problems farmers face today. I was honored to have him take time out of his busy schedule for this interview. I hope you enjoy it, and you can find his books available online at their website at www.dig2grow.com. That's dig, the number two, grow.com, or through any major bookseller or retailer. Well, thanks, David. I really appreciate you taking the time today to chat with me on the podcast. Well, no worries. I'm happy to be here. So I want to start off by giving listeners a little bit of a background into, well, your background, actually, and how you got into so fascinated with soils and uh, agriculture. Well, sure. You know, I, I came to that interest from uh, a rather unusual route because uh, professionally I'm a geologist. So I, I study the way that Earth's surface features form, the, the kind of geologist that studies landscape evolution. So, you know, how rivers shape lowland terrain and carve valleys out of mountains, what glaciers do to mountains, what limits the height of mountains, what creates pools for fish habitat in mountain streams in the northwest and what happens to rivers and volcanoes explode, all that great geological stuff that impacts the surface of the earth that we live on, that we walk around on, and that shapes our not only our daily lives, but you know, really sort of the whole lay of the land that we know as our world. So I've been fascinated by that for, for decades professionally. And the first thing you want to know about a landscape as a geomorphologist, that, that flavor of geologist that I am, is is there soil on the on the land because it it influences how things erode the shape of terrain um it's sort of the first thing you want to know and the first issue you run into there is well how fast does soil form what does it form out of how does it form what are its properties and how fast does it erode because it's that balance between soil production and soil erosion that shapes how much soil we have on Earth's landscapes. So I, I came to the sort of an interest in soil and an interest in farming and thinking about how agronomic practices affect the cultivation of crops uh, from a, a fairly unusual direction for someone who thinks about that stuff. So I come from sort of a bigger picture, longer time frame, and bottom-up perspective rather than looking at it from the top down. 
And so you've sort of looked at it now from a macroscopic and a microscopic level with the, the books that you've <laughs> written. <laughs> yeah, cause when, you, when you go into looking at soil and thinking about what makes it fertile and all the sort of the complex relationships between plants you're growing in soil and what's going on around the root systems below ground, you run right into the microbial world, that world of, of microscopic organisms that are, you know, can be a great benefit to plants, but, you know, that can also uh, be sources of pests and pathogens. And uh, my wife, who's a biologist, Anne Baclay, and I wrote The Hidden Half of Nature about that part of uh, uh, of the whole deal here, and so yeah, we went, I've gone from the broad picture down to worrying about things so small we can't see them, but that have big effects that that not only affect how we can grow our our food and other crops, but but um, the sort of the shape and character of Earth's surface. So I'm I'm fortunate enough to be able to talk to Anne here soon regarding the hidden half of nature. So I'm looking forward to hearing about that book from her. But can you? Tell me a little bit more about dirt and growing a revolution, and what inspired you to write these two books. Yeah, sure. The, you know, those three books together form what Ann and I um, sort of partially jokingly call our dirt trilogy, because uh, the the <laughs> dirt book, the Dirt: The Erosion of Civilizations, was the first one in it that I wrote. It came out about ten years ago, two thousand seven, and it's the book that uh, I think helped pave the way for a MacArthur Award that I got back then, based I think on the strength of that book and one I'd done on the environmental history of salmon that's a whole different story but that dirt book what it looks at is it's the kind of book you might expect a geologist to write about soils it's a backwards looking book through history that looks at what happened to ancient civilizations that degraded their land enough that it compromised their ability to grow their their, their food crops their fabric crops um, their ability to support themselves agronomically uh, by degrading or losing their soil and it traces that the course and history of those kind of interactions literally since the dawn of agriculture right on up through uh, the, the uh, post-war era in the 20th century when what we know today is modern conventional agriculture, the sort of chemical intensive uh, variety of agriculture really came to be the norm across uh, conventional agronomy. So it's a broad sweeping view of um, the way that humanity has related to the land over the millennia and how the way we've treated the land has in turn influenced the way that um, the soil has been able to support um, civilizations or not once the uh, land was degraded enough that it undercut the ability of societies to, to feed and provision themselves. So it was, it was a fun look back through history that um, the bottom line is essentially societies that didn't take care of their soil didn't last. Yeah, that's really interesting. So as we move into a, an era of modern agriculture here in sort of the United States and, and Europe with uh, the end of, I believe that was World War II when we started to see a lot more of uh, ammonium nitrate and some of these fertilizers being used in conventional agriculture. Uh, how, how do you see that influencing our society and the impact that it's had uh, moving forward? Well, you know, there's uh, one of the big uh, problems that we face in the 21st century is that the um, the amount of really productive uh, farmland that we have has been decreasing for the last hundred years. And actually, big theme of the dirt book has been decreasing for longer than that, but it's it's accelerated in the 20th century. Uh, whereas our the human the global human population is going up at the same time, projected over the next half century to century. And those curves are working against each other, where if we're, it's going to become harder and harder to feed everybody if we have more people and less land that's in good, fertile shape to do it. Um, so that, that's one of the big concerns. And one of the other concerns is that the ways that we've practiced agriculture with in, in the modern world, with intensive tillage, intensive fertilization, and, and uh, pesticide use, really compromises all that soil life that you'll talk with Ann about when you talk about the hidden half of nature. Um, and all those microbes uh, live on the organic matter in the soil, and modern agronomic practices have reduced that on average around the world by about 50%. So, you know, roughly half of the organic matter that was in uh, U U.S. topsoil that was, you know, when we were originally breaking ground to farm it, uh, about half of it's gone. So we've drawn down the the fertility batteries, if you will, of our nation's soils 
by about half, and that number is roughly about right for the world, too. Um, and that's of great concern when you think about the problem of feeding the future. And it also comes into uh, concern in when we think about the quality of crops, uh, because it's the interaction. There's a lot of interactions between soil life and plant roots that help um, influence the way that mineral micronutrients get into plants, the things that build enzymes and that build um, healthy plant bodies um, that are versatile on their own defensive systems. Um, and it also affects phytochemical production in terms of the kinds and amounts of chemicals that the plants themselves produce, which can affect their nutritional quality for us or their medicinal properties in, in other um, in other arenas and, and in non-food crops. Um, but the, we've been learning that the way that we grow our crops or the health of the soil we grow them in um, can have a big effect on the quality of the stuff that comes out. Now, I did a previous podcast with Steve Solomon, who's the author of The Intelligent Gardener and Gardening West of the Cascades, which is a really popular book uh, here in the Northwest. And one of his uh, influences was Weston Price and his oh, book, yeah. and his yeah. book um, on uh, re on mineralization, I guess, in soils and how the soil in a certain area would affect a culture's uh, dental health. What are what are your findings in terms of uh, mineral levels in soil? Because you're mentioning phytochemicals and other influences that the nutrients in different soils are having on plants. Yeah, you know, Weston Price and his, his work is very interesting, as were others of his peers in that era, in the 20s, 30s, and 40s, because um, it's very difficult today to get good sort of population-level data to try and connect the health of the soil to the health of people. Um, and they were, there's examples of dental uh, records and other things from back in his era. But today one of the problems is that, you know, you walk into a grocery store and there's food from all over the world. And so... You know, very few people in the developed world are eating food that's, you know, primarily grown in soils that you can identify where it came from. Did it come from a, a good, healthy soil in a, in a field off of a, of, a, of a farm, or did it come from a very degraded farm or a farm in a very degraded part of the world? So it's hard to connect. It's hard to get studies that connect those dots today, but there's some very interesting ones back in Price's day where you could make that assumption that people were eating food that was grown fairly locally to where they lived. So you could examine, you know, broad scale impacts of things like the, the geology, uh, the kind of rocks in a region, and did, were they calcium rich or did they calcium poor, for example, in the dental studies, and it tracked through to sort of affect to affect dental health in ways that were, were fairly clear, um, might be fairly crude studies by today's standards of, of science, but they were, they're interesting, clear, and fairly clear in my view. Um, and that opens questions about, you know, how much does the way we grow our food and the places that we grow it in, how much of the character of those processes and those, those places really translate into things like the mineral density and the foods that we eat, um, and how does that translate into health effects for us? And Anne and I are working on a new book that's going to be looking into that kind of stuff um, in as much detail as we can find out there in the literature as we pull it together. But we're literally in the, the early stages of working on that book. Oh, that's great. I'm really excited to see how that turns out. Um, there just isn't enough research out there that I've seen, at least, on human nutrition and its relation to soil and you've sort of touched on it in, in all of your books to a certain extent um, especially in the hidden half yeah we've dug into it in way to, you know, to the extent that we could find things and to the extent that those things mapped on to the, our sort of plan for the arc and flow of, of those books and the topics we hit on and the hidden half is where we got closest to it because we talked about the way that um, you know, bacteria and mycorrhizal fungi in the soil help to provision mineral elements or to grab them out of mineral particles in the soil and get them into crops. And yeah, there needs to be more data that looks at the effect of how we grow food on those, um, uh, on the mineral micronutrients, on the phytochemicals, the kind of things in food, in plants that we know should be affected by agronomic practices, but for which nutritionists don't tend to identify them as 
um, as nutrients because they're you know, micronutrients we don't need very much or in the case of phytochemicals they're not really sure what to call them or consider them even though they have demonstrated human health benefits in um, other studies. So yeah, there needs to be a, a lot more research and look at that. It's a fascinating uh, topic. Um, but yeah, we touched a bit on it in the hidden half, as I'm sure you'll talk with her about. Um, but there's a lot more that can be dug into, and so we're we're trying to synthesize as much of that information as we can get our hands on. Yeah, um, it, it makes me wonder what the future of agriculture really holds in terms of consumer perception. If at some point in time we'll go into the grocery store and we'll have conventionally grown produce and we'll have organic produce and maybe we'll have nutrient dense produce or similar to the wine industry where certain areas are renowned for their terroir or their mineral content in their soils you know we may see something similar in terms of vegetables that are grown in a particular region or grown in a particular manner um, something like yeah. that yeah yeah, no, I, I, you know, if you look out 20, if you look out like 20 or 30 years, I would forecast that there's going to be um, much more in the way of, of what you might think of, of like supply chain information on where your food came from and how it was grown at the point of purchase. So you might be able to, you know, scan a code that would tell you, oh, this is from X farm and it has this much zinc and this much beta carotene for carrots or something. And you could compare this batch of carrots over here labeled whatever it is, organic or regenerative or conventional versus that batch of carrots over there um, and try and actually assess what's the quality of the product um, as opposed to, all we really know today walking into a, a food store is, you know, okay, well, is it, what's it labeled? Is it labeled organic? Is it labeled conventional? Um, and there's a huge spectrum of practices in both those arenas convention, of conventional ag and, and organic agriculture. And that's a lot of what I wrote about in the, the latest book, Growing a Revolution, uh, where I was looking at farmers who had adopted practices that rebuilt the fertility of their soil and how that affected their their uh, crop yields, their diesel use, their fertilizer use, their pesticide use, their profitability. Um, but we didn't end up looking at um, the quality of the produce because there wasn't, I, I had a hard time finding enough data to, to um, weave in along with all the other stuff I was looking at, which is why Anna and I are taking on this new project to try and see what kind of data is come to light in the last couple of years since I did the research for Growing Your Evolution. But uh, in, um, you know, in, in relation to what I think some of your listeners might be uh, even more interested in, it, I was really quite surprised to find that in the, the cannabis industry, they're way ahead of the vegetable industry in testing the phytochemical abundance in their products. Um, and I would love to see the day when tomatoes would come with the kind of labels that um, uh, are, are now common in, the, in states where cannabis has been legalized. Yeah, that's really interesting. I know there's some challenges right now around the testing methodologies and, the, and how much we can trust these tests from the various labs <laughs> that we're getting them. Yeah, yeah I, but, would, I would imagine, yeah. <laughs> but at least the, the testing protocols are there and there's requirements around testing that I think are really important. So we're, when it seems, it seems like that there's consumer interest in knowing uh, things like the terpene profiles of cannabis, sort of what are the, the what are the active ingredients in the phytochemicals that affect the nature of the product, whereas for tomatoes, there's no such information available to consumers at all, and yet it relates directly to flavor and healthfulness. Yeah, as someone who has an edible nursery and sells produce, I you know we carry a variety of plants of a particular you know, of a particular type. So we have all these different tomatoes. And when you read about a description of tomato, you may hear that this particular one is higher in phytonutrients, for example. And mm -hmm. so we'll grow it, but we don't really know. We're not actually testing that tomato to see if these claims are true or what levels of differences there may act. It may be so minor that it's not even worth, um, not even worth mentioning, but we don't really know. Right, right. Yeah, or, or, how, or how much how you grow it affects the expression of those, phytoche those phytochemicals and phytonutrients. Um, and that's, that's something where I think that you were talking about the future of agriculture a minute ago, and I think at the one level there's this sort of, there'll be more consumer interest in understanding what is in things. But I also think there'll be um, uh, opportunities to explore the degree to which the style of growing 
actually affects the expression of phytonutrients uh, as opposed to just the hard-baked genetics in different varieties of crops. And you could think of them as sort of two different dimensions that could be explored agronomically, one crop breeding to manipulate the genetics and the basic practices of how do you treat the soil? You know, are you, what are you fertilizing it with? Are you disturbing the ground surface? Are you returning the crop residue from the same plant to the same fields? Do you have other plants growing along in the same soil over time? Um, those kind of things are sort of this whole other dimension in ter- to explore in terms of the phytochemical and phytonutrient expression in, in, in crops. So when you wrote Growing a Revolution, you got to travel around and visit a lot of these farms, if I remember correctly. And yeah, can you touch on a little bit of some of the different practices that you saw, you know, the good, the bad, what really was... Uh, what was really working out there? Sure. I mean, uh, I, um, what, um, what Anne will talk to you about in talking about the hidden half of nature is how she restored the soil and its fertility in our yard with her, with her gardening practices and her mulching and her composting. Uh, and I was watching this after writing the dirt book about how ancient societies had destroyed and degraded their land. And Anne was turning that whole story around on its head right in, in my backyard. <laughs> Uh, and, you know, it took me a while to sort of clue in and watch, and, and it took her a while to notice the changes. But they happened really remarkably fast, as I'm sure you guys will talk about. Um, but I came away from that experience wondering, okay, what, to what degree could similar kinds of practices bring the fertility of our cropland, our agricultural soils, back? How, fa- how long could it, would it take? Uh, could it be done at scale? Could you do it on big farms? Could you do it on little farms? So I took six months off from uh, teaching at the University of Washington, where I work, and visited farms around the world that had adopted practices to prioritize rebuilding the health of their soil and thereby the fertility of their land. And I went to uh, farms in the Dakotas, North and South Dakota. I went to Ohio. I went to Saskatchewan. uh, I went to uh, Costa Rica and Equatorial West Africa and looked at farms that ranged from 20,000 acres in size, sort of really big industrialized farms uh, in uh, the Dakotas, and then also really small subsistence farms in, in Costa Rica and in, uh, and in Ghana. And what I came away with was the realization that there's a simple set of principles, fairly high-level agronomic principles, that if adopted all together as a system, really our recipe for cultivating the kinds of beneficial soil life that Anne will tell you all about, because after all, she's the biologist in our, in our household, I'm the geologist. Um, but there's a set of agronomic practices that really cultivate that beneficial life that are pretty simple conceptually. It's, it's minimize the disturbance of the soil. It's always keep the ground covered with cover crops or some living plant. Um, no bare soil. Don't farm naked. Always keep the ground covered. Um, and the third principle being grow a diversity of things. Don't just grow one or two crops in the same soil because over time that is an invitation for pests and pathogens to take root. But So either grow a diversity of crops around your cash crop or in a rotation in between your cash crops. And you know those three simple principles were the common elements that every farmer I visited that had restored, you know, remarkably turned their soil around within a decade or two. They'd all uh, adopted practices that were faithful to those principles. Now, the practices they had in different parts of the world, they were different. So, you know, the guys in Ghana were not doing the same things as the people in Costa Rica or the people in the Dakotas or Ohio. They each had their own specific style of practices to minimize disturbance um, and to keep the ground covered and to to get a diversity in there. But those those 40,000-foot high-level principles were honored across the board in those systems. Um, and they had exhibited remarkable transformations over you know, what a geologist considers to be a really short period of time. So I was really impressed with how fast a different style of thinking about the soil as the foundation for agriculture, but how big a difference that could make. And it scales from you know our yard in North Seattle to these 20,000-acre farms in the Dakotas. And there's all kinds of side benefits that come with it in terms of reduced fertilizer use, reduced pesticide use reduced diesel use. And when you look at sort of modern, big-scale commodity crop production farms in the U.S. at least, those are the key expensive items on the farm. So if you can cut those expenses, 
and keep the yields up, it's a recipe for a more profitable farm. And that's where I turned into an optimist on this stuff. Yeah, and in that sense, as a geologist, can you go into a little bit more why it is important to not disturb the soil and why it's important to cover the soil? Uh, I think those two, especially from a geological perspective, are really interesting. Yeah, you know, if you if you go out into the woods somewhere and you dig a hole and you look at the profile of the soil, so you like clean off face off and just look at the wall of the hole that you dug and look at the nature of the soil, there's generally a lot of organic matter on top, and the farther down you go, you got more mineral matter, more uh, broken up rocks. And if you think of what makes soil fertile, it's that marriage of geology and biology, the mixing of the dead parts of rocks <laughs> and when, with the living stuff of, of live organisms or the once living uh, organic matter, you know, rotting leaves, animal carcasses, the whole sort of, uh, uh, all the stuff that uh, plants and animals rot into. It's that combination of organic matter and mineral matter that makes healthy, fertile soil. And the most, the, the lion's share of fertility in the soil is in that surface layer, the, the topsoil. But it's only about, you know, 6 to 12 inches thick in most places. It's a fairly thin and fragile layer on the surface of the earth before you get down into the, the subsoil, which has far less fertility in it, and then get down to the bedrock, which, you know, it's hard to grow plants just in, on bedrock. Some plants can do it, but those tend to be pioneers, not the ones we grow for crops. Um, and so if you think about soil as this fairly thin and fragile layer that coats the surface of the earth that is the the recycling engine for turning all the nutrients that are held in living organisms, plants and animals, back into the raw materials to feed the next generation of living organisms through the way plants take the stuff up through the roots and then herbivores eat the plants and you know, carnivores eat the herbivores and the whole circle of life goes round and round again. Um, soil is um, a pretty fundamental resource when you think about it that way. And yet the big, the great history of humanity for the last 10,000 years is that we've been mining soil fertility to feed ourselves in regions around the world. Um, and now that we have an, a global civilization where regional food shortages translate into global crises, whether through refugees or economic crises, um, and, and the, the roots of some of the, the big modern conflicts around the world can be traced to land degradation and conflict over land. Uh, you know, just look at the Middle East today. Um, Soil is going to become an increasingly important uh, touchstone and resource for humanity through this century um, because it's of its very fundamental nature to maintaining agronomic uh, productivity and production. And now I've rambled enough that I forgot what your question was. <laughs> well, I was looking at it. No, I, I found that really fascinating. And I, I also think it's very interesting how when you look at uh, culture, I was an anthropology major at the University of Washington. So... My alma mater. Oh, okay, great. Yeah, yes. all right. Uh, I looked at it from a cultural perspective, but if we look at how soil influenced culture and how, and how, you know, societies grew up based on, you know, the fertility of the land. I mean, agriculture was sort of what allowed us to make that next evolutionary step in a lot of ways from a cultural perspective. Yeah. So, I mean, we can oh, talk yeah, about was... that for, <laughs> you know, there's there's whole courses on just that topic. So. Oh yeah, you know the. the... The sort of the first, I like to think of us having gone through four major agricultural revolutions so far. And the first one was just thinking about you know, doing agriculture in the first place. It was a, it was a radical act. And uh, in the Dirt Book, I talk about the early origin of agriculture in the Middle East and um, how it was a process that was in many ways driven by desperation uh, due, to a due to a climate shift. Uh, coming out of the last ice age, there was a a cold snap that the the climate in the Middle East snapped back to full-on glacial for about a thousand years at a time when the the hunter and gatherers in that region had come to rely on the new plants and animals of the warming the then warming climate um, and then all of a sudden they're back to full glacial conditions and their food sources disappeared except for grasses and that's when we started cultivating grains like the proto emmers and wheats and things that um, uh, there was a big problem in terms of feeding oneself with um, in the shrinking shrinking resource base. But once people started intentionally collecting and hybrid and hybridizing and planting seeds, 
they got pretty good at growing food, and their population was able to sort of grow and increase. And we've gotten better and better and better at having fewer and fewer people grow more and more food. So that today, instead of you know 99% of us being farmers in the United States, 1% of us are farmers. We've kind of totally flipped the ratios mm-hmm. in terms of who's feeding how many people over the course of agricultural history. And that, of course, lets people like me you know, be things like professors at universities because I don't have to be out working in the fields all the time. Um, so a major first step on the road to civilization was, was, was agriculture and the audacious act of planting and tending uh, our food sources as opposed to just um, gathering them from you know, keen, keen observational uh, experience uh, in nature. And I would think that the second agricultural revolution was when we learned how to um, do things like uh, plant legumes in crop rotations and rotate our crops, thing, you know, manure the fields, things that boost, help to uh, boost soil fertility through acts of soil husbandry. And those were identified you know, by societies around the world, and they became traditional. And you'll notice that two of those three principles I mentioned earlier, you know, keeping the ground covered with cover crops and having a diverse rotation, these are old ideas. These are not new ideas. Societies around the world adopted them. What's brand new is taking those old ideas of soil husbandry and coupling them with things like no-till farming that allows us to farm without the plow. Um, and that's important because if you plow the surface of the earth and you, you invert the soil, you turn it over, um, it leaves it bare and vulnerable to erosion by wind or rain for until the next crop comes in or the or the or weeds take over your field whatever is uh, comes in next if you get a good rainstorm when the ground is ground is bare you get that phenomenon i'm sure that we've all seen of like runoff off a construction site where they've stripped off the vegetation you got bare earth you get rain and you got muddy muddy water running off well that's fertility just going right down the drain and that's the story of farming in many ancient societies that relied on the plow for, for weed control and preparing their seed beds is that over the generations, they literally lost their topsoil. And then the third agricultural revolution, uh, to go back to that thread, was mechanization and, and the use of chemical fertilizers in the 19th and 20th centuries. In the 20th century, we then got on to sort of the biotechnology revolution as the fourth revolution, uh, looking at um, the so-called green revolution and the development of GMO crops and so forth in the agrotech business. And I think we're poised now uh, for actually a fifth agricultural revolution that's built on identifying practices that build the health of the soil as the foundation for a sustainable agriculture, not to abandon modern technology, but to essentially integrate the best of modern technology with the best of ancient wisdom and soil husbandry in a new system of farming that honors those three principles. So that's that's where I kind of ended up in the Growing a Revolution book, is that we've got an opportunity to rethink how we look at the soil in agriculture, um, and that that's um, you know, a, a huge opportunity for humanity this century to try and um, get it right this time. So what would you say to people on the other side of the coin that may be looking at the future of agriculture from the perspective of hydroponics and nutrient solutions that are um, specifically created for crops, you know, and in many cases, GMO crops, uh, moving further and further away from organics? Yeah, you know, that's that's sort of a big debate. Ann and I are are starting to gather data uh, and to look at some of those issues for the, the the new book that we're starting to work on on relating soil health to human health. So everything I say will be provisional until we, we dive in and sort out as much as we can. But okay. you know, ba- based on the work we've done in previous books, you've got to wonder uh, about the, you know, if you're growing plants in um, a non-soil medium, you're just, you're growing them either you know, really hydroponically or in a medium that's not really soil, where you just have a um, so like a sand or coconut fiber or some substrate that's there to hold the, the roots up and then you're adding everything to the mix to grow your, your plant. Um, what are you missing in terms of the interaction of that plant with the microbes in the root system of that plant? And Anne will, I'm sure, tell you a lot more about the, the exudates that plants push out into the soil and the things the microbes make from them that the plants take back up that shapes 
the phytochemical abundance and profile in the plants and the and the, their mineral micronutrient concentrations, their nutrient density. Um, there's what well, we know enough about the relationship of plants to their microbiome, their microbiology and, that surrounds them in the soil, to know that there's connections between the state of the soil and what's getting into plants. Um, and so if you then remove soil from the equation or you remove that life from the equation and you just say add you know, zinc or copper or whatever micronutrients you want to add in just the right proportions for your crop, um, how much are they taking up? How much, how important was the role of soil life in actually getting the plants to absorb those nutrients? Um, so there's questions there in terms of what the basic effects are. But if you look at the problem of, say, like growing, I don't know, lettuce in a, in a city, um, and you look at it from an energetic perspective, if you're, not, if you're not growing that plant in a soil where the biology is doing a lot of the work of nutrient acquisition, provisioning, and transport for you, then you've got to acquire those nutrients from somewhere else and bring them to your hydroponic system and add them. Mm -hmm. And that may not be energetically efficient for all nutrients. Um, the beautiful thing about a soil is it's grabbing a lot of those nutrients, the, the life in the soil, is grabbing a lot of that the micronutrients out of the mineral particles and recycling organic matter, and that's a that's a whole different game than if you're just adding, um, you know, a little chemical A, a little chemical B into the mix. Um, that said, on the flip side of, of looking at hydroponics, I think there's all kinds of interesting opportunities for thinking about microbial amendments and a, microbial inoculants, both for plants grown in the soil. And also, and probably especially for plants that are grown hydroponically, because without a soil, there's going to be depauperate in terms of their um, their own microbiome. So you'd want to have some kind of a compost tea or microbial amendments. And my suspicion is that there's an awful lot yet to be learned about how to dial those kind of systems in for either optimal optimal growing or optimal um, you know phytochemical and micronutrient profiles of various crops. Um, we're sort of in the early days of understanding how those microbial communities affect plants. And a lot of what the, the people in the wine business refer to as terroir, a lot of that is probably shaped and influenced by the microbial communities in the soil, on the skin of the grapes that get involved, that get involved in the fermentation process. Um, there's a lot to still be learned about how it all works. Yeah, to me it feels you know, almost arrogant to think that we can create uh, a nutrient <laughs> solution that can match what nature does in the soil. And we don't even know it's, we don't even know half the species in the soil. So yeah, we, there's no way that we can match it. The quest, I think the real question is with the real arrogance is that we could do better. You know, that, you know, to think that, yeah, it's, I, I'm with you on that. <laughs> I mean, we know we can grow a plant completely right, hydroponically right. and completely control that plant's life. That's been established and well accepted. Now, what yep. we can't prove is that that plant is gonna offer us the same nutritional benefits uh, that we would be getting from a plant that was grown in, you know, in well-made soil. So that's the real yeah, challenge. Yeah, exactly. And that, that's the kind of thing Ann and I are starting to poke our noses into. And we'll, we'll see how far um, we can get into that. Um, but it, it's a fascinating area because we now know enough about the science to know that there's some very legitimate questions like you're asking to ask. Um, and there's probably not as much data as anybody would like to have to answer those questions, which makes for an interesting challenge in terms of triangulation of, you know, what kind of perspective and data can we bring in from different kinds of studies to develop a, uh, a mature understanding of those connections uh, so that people could make decisions about um, you know, where they want their food to be grown, how they want their wine to be grown, how they want their weed to be grown. I mean, there's, um, I think, I, I think in the next, in the coming decade or two, we'll see a lot more people asking questions about all three. You know, your, uh, your comment reminded me of a, a book I've been reading. It's called Proof. I believe it's by Adam Price. But essentially, he talks in the book about uh, sort of the microbial interactions that go on around alcohol and how uh, some of these distilleries, these famous whiskey distilleries, have tried to recreate their uh, 
their building, you know, their whole infrastructure half a mile away from their original facility and they can't make the same whiskey <laughs> because they can't get the same microbial, you know, even that microclimate of, of microbial life has that much effect on the crop or they believe that their, uh, the special yeasts are living in the roof of their building. So they built another roof on top of their roof when that roof started to fail. Uh, there's just, it's so fascinating <laughs> to me how these microbes influence you know, in, influence our behavior and influence our crops and, and influence oh, our culture. Yeah. And I know Anne is really the one to speak to on a lot of the microbial stuff, but uh, you just made me think of that as we were chatting. Um, yeah, no, it's, ama it's amazing. I mean, and, we're, and we're just becoming aware of the magnitude of those impacts and the influence of, of not the kind of ideas of... Uh, you know, there's like a particular disease organism that causes a particular disease, the whole, the whole germ theory thing, but how it's the community of microbes for a lot of these beneficial effects that matter. And when you think about how little, how long it took us to actually understand the community ecology of the nature we can see with our own senses. I mean, it took us a hundred years to figure out that taking the wolves out of Yellowstone caused the elk to overgraze the riparian zones, which changed the river morphology. And so that if you wanted to restore the river, you had to bring wolves back. <laughs> you know, it took us a hundred years to figure that out. And we can see all the animals and the plants and how they interact and how the water flows. So just imagine how complicated it is to understand that microbial community ecology when we can't even see the damn things. So as someone listening to this podcast who's cultivating cannabis, they may say, who cares? They're not eating the crop. In, oh, I mean, some of them are, but um, in general, it's being, <laughs> you know, combusted or heated. Uh, so the nutritional right. aspects of the cannabis is probably less important to them. So why does this data and why do your books matter? I know I'm putting you on the spot here. Uh, from, the, <laughs> from the perspective of cultivation with cannabis. Oh, well, that's fair enough. I mean, um, I don't mind being put on the spot. The, um, I, I think that one of the connections there, uh, you know, if you're not relying on cannabis as a mainstay of your diet, which, you know, I do not recommend. <laughs> um, um, if you're, uh, then I can see how, you know, worrying about, say, the micronutrient profile is not going to be your biggest issue. Um, but if you look at things like uh, the various terpene profiles, uh, the balance of CBDs and THC in cannabis, these are things that I think that most growers probably think that the biggest influence on those things uh, lies in the genetics of the plant. And there's been, you know, people breeding cannabis back since I was in high school in Northern California that have been, you know, playing with um, how to uh, influence the expression of characteristics in that crop. Um, but the whole microbiome connection in the soil is another dimension to what could affect um, yeah, terpene profiles, phytochemical abundance, um, which could translate into either the, um, um, the relative medicinal versus psychoactive effects in the case of THC and CBDs, or even more so, I think, in terms of the flavor profiles and, um, and sort of the nature of the psychoactive effects, whether you've got something like myrcene, a lot of myrcene or limonene is going to affect both flavor and, and effect in cannabis. And those things, the, the relative magnitude of phytochemicals, are things that should be influenced by um, agronomic practices. So, you know, the style of hydroponic growing, outdoor soil, sun grown, you should see differences in the expression of phytochemicals uh, due to those kinds of practices. And so, as a, for your listener who may be a, may be a grower, I guess how what I would suggest is that if they're they're thinking about the sort of the genetic palette that they have to work with, with all the, the crosses and strains and whatever that, that, that they have their, um, in their, their repertoire, shall we say. The style of growing is another dimension. It's sort of a different axis in terms of how to influence the expression and character of the product. Um, and I think there's a lot of room to experiment with that that probably hasn't received as much attention in terms of the, the outcome as the science that that Ann and I are familiar with sort of would suggest that it might warrant. Yeah, that's a great answer. And I think that's a really important aspect. In fact, I have some, I'll have to put you in touch with a uh, friend of mine who just got some really amazing results down in uh, Phantom Farms in terms of their terpene numbers being so much higher than what you're normally seeing in the industry at, at growing 
using you know living soils and these organic practices. I think that's a really important aspect yep. of it. And that's and that's exactly what I think Ann and I would predict. And we'd love to um, uh, communicate with that person and get um, and uh, if they're willing to share their data because we're in the new book we want to have chapters on you know grains, vegetables, uh, wine grapes, and cannabis as sort of a, a wide range of agronomic applications. So assuming that the listener to this podcast just doesn't care about the environment, doesn't care about sustainability. I mean, I don't think this is the case, but even <laughs> even barring those thoughts and doesn't care about organics, what did you see when you were writing Growing Revolution in terms of pest and disease suppression and some of these practices? Well, there's um, really good examples now in nature of uh, studies that have looked at the connection between um, a healthy living soil in the sense of an organic matter rich soil with a whole bunch of microorganisms in it, which is sort of what healthy living soil is shorthand for. <laughs> um, the, um, uh, there's a whole bunch of examples where the defense, the interactions between the, that microbiota and the soil and the plants sort of mediated through what's going out of and back into their roots um, influence uh, essentially the defense system of the plant. And if you have a crop that is um, sort of over-fertilized and growing in relatively sterile soil, um, then you've essentially dismantled its defensive system, which is in great part manifest in its relationship with the soil microbiome that makes chemical compounds that the plant can take up and use for its defense. There's a lot of complicated interactions and synergies there that, I, that Anne can probably talk with you about when, at length on The Hidden Half, because that's at the heart of that book. Um, but the key thing is that if you have um, plants growing in a, health, in a um, life-rich, fertile soil, they're going to be more robust and both pest and disease resistant. And those are experiments that go back 100 years in botany, back to uh, Hiltner back in the, what, 1910s, I think it was, where um, you know, if you try and grow plants in a sterile medium, they're very susceptible to pests and pathogens. You grow them in an organic matter-rich soil full of bacteria and fungi, the pests and pathogens can't really get a seat at the table to attack the plant. They get out-competed by all the bent more, um, uh, less uh, damaging or even more beneficial organisms that um, thrive in the root zone around plants. So I think that in terms of uh, um, you know, sort of net expenditures on fertilizer, net expenditures on pesticides, what I found in conventional agriculture was that farmers who had adopted practices rooted around those three principles I uh, talked about earlier, they were able to reduce, to so reduce their input costs, their need for pesticides, their need for fertilizers, that it saved them, you know, a boatload of money. Hmm. Interesting. You know, uh, this is something I might have mentioned in previous podcasts, but it made me think of it is, I, I don't know if you're familiar with the giant pumpkin community, but these guys... I'm so the, I'm sorry, the what community? The giant pumpkin community. This As is giant pump, giant pumpkins. That's correct. Uh, that's what I thought you said. I yeah. was like, what do you say? So these guys are <laughs> as passionate as cannabis growers about their crop. They grow from seed to fruit, uh, trying to get one, the largest pumpkin they can in a season. And they're up, I think, over 2,600 pounds now. It's, it's insane. But... <laughs> Initially, pumpkin. <laughs> yeah, initially they were they were uh, sort of stalling out right around a thousand pounds, and so by a combination, and and they were doing it mainly conventionally. So they're using all your traditional conventional things and just pumping mm -hmm. these pumpkins full of nutrients, and they yeah. were getting split stems. They were having other issues uh, and rot to where the pumpkins weren't making it to the weigh-ins, or they stopped. They stalled out on their growing, and so they started using organic practices again, like mycorrhizal fungus and compost mm -hmm. and a combination of, you know, improving genetics and these practices, this hybrid approach of feeding small amounts of chemical nutrients in conjunction with organic practices and building their soil has allowed them to reach these new, you know, they never thought they'd break the 2000 pound barrier, you know, even five, six years ago. So it's really, it's really yeah. come a long way. And I think that that's a lot of the future of agriculture is maybe we're not going to throw all chemical nutrients and, and, and traditional agriculture away, but find ways to incorporate it 
back into our organic practices in you know micro doses. Yeah, the, the sort of the happy hybrid kind of a, a way to look at it. Where you know I, I was uh, you know, blissfully unaware of the giant pumpkin community, but um, <laughs> the, uh, but that sounds like a really interesting story. I might be interested in digging more into the. Um, uh, but uh, a number of the farmers I interviewed in Growing a Revolution uh, were conventional farmers who had so reduced their input use based on improving the fertility of their soil that I started teasing them that they were organic-ish farmers. And they had better yields than their neighbors. They had much lower expenses than their neighbors. It, was, it seemed to me to be a really positive combination. And, it, you know, and they were not fully organic. They had basically done what you just described of trying to take some of the best features of organic agriculture and reserving the ability or the right, as some of them put it, to use other means, some of the, some of the chemicals that they've come to rely on when they thought they really needed them. Mm-hmm. But the more they improved their soil, they found the less they needed them, and they were happy not to buy it. That reliance on petrochemicals, too, is, is obviously a global issue and global concern. Yeah. So there's, yep. there's a lot of motivation there to move away from them. Um, so I'm, can you talk a little bit more then about the, uh, this idea of organic? So as you went around, are you seeing this as sort of, like you mentioned, this next revolution? Do you really think this is the future of agriculture? Or do you think as speculation as society, are we going to hit a point where uh, conventional agriculture just no longer functions? You know, if we go, there's a report that came out in 2015 from the United Nations called the Global State of the Soil Report, assessment I think it was called. Um, and they basically uh, maintained in, in that report that we're losing about 0.3% of our agronomic production capacity globally each and every year due to ongoing soil degradation and loss. And you know, 0.3% is kind of a small number unless you think out over the next 50 or 100 years, and then it's another 50 to 15 to 30% of, of global uh, agricultural capacity reduced. Um, we, if we maintain farming practices that continue to degrade the land that we depend on to grow our food, we're going to get in trouble down the road. That's the story of ancient societies that I laid out in the dirt book. What I'm really happy about is that a lot of these soil building practices, if they were adopted more widely, could reverse that and turn it around in shockingly short order in the way that a geologist thinks about things. We could actually turn it around this century. We could pull it out of the fire. Um, but it would require thinking differently about how we farm uh, on, our con- on our conventional cropland. Um, but I think there's a lot of opportunities to do that. Whether we'll do it, I don't know. Uh, there's a, 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 some fairly large and obvious interests that would prefer we maintain uh, the, what we now call conventional agriculture because there's some very profitable um, um, industries that are built up around that that aren't necessarily on farm, but are involved in selling farmers things and buying things from farmers. Um, it's one of the big, I think, big environmental issues of our time that doesn't get anywhere near the attention that it deserves. Um, but I don't see the downside of trying to restore health and, to, and fertility to the world's farmland soils. Our our great-grandchildren are going to need that, that soil in good shape to make their living. Um, and I think if we can do it profitably, we should pursue that and take whatever turnover there is in terms of um, its impact on certain industries in stride. Yeah, and we're losing soil too as our population expands. You know, we're asphalting yeah, over but, more and more of it every day. Yeah, yeah, and that, those things are working in the wrong direction against each other. Um, and so we've got to figure out how to, you know, sort of strike a balance, I think, between uh, what we've considered to be conventional agriculture and organic agriculture in terms of trying to make more more of conventional agriculture this style of organic-ish agriculture that I argue about and argue for in the book. And we've also got to sort of think about how are we going to grow food in cities near where people are as more and more of us are in cities. Um, and how do we grow all our, all our other crops as well, from, from, from wine to cannabis to, to the fibers that, that we wear? Yeah, it's a, it's not anything we're going to be able to solve overnight for sure, but uh, it's good to know that there's people out there writing books about it and encouraging people to, you know, all, all these things like 
regenerative agriculture, agricultural practices, you know, sourcing things locally. I know you have a, a garden at your, at your house. I have a garden at my house. Uh, oh, yeah. Um, it's important that people get in and learn where their food comes from, and I think that that can't be emphasized enough. Yep, and there's, you know, if we all, if we all improved the soil in our daily lives, whether it's in our garden or on our farm, um, you know, if everybody got into doing that, there's a shocking amount of carbon that could be parked in the ground in ways that benefit the expression of, of phytochemicals and micronutrients in our crops that um, just benefit the fertility of the land. It's, it's one of those things where if everybody could do their own little piece in their own little corner of the world, it would add up to a lot if enough people did it. You know, you brought up something that I'd wanted to ask you about a little bit earlier. So the last topic I would have is when I was talking about not less disturbance of the soil, I was really looking at it from a carbon perspective. Can you explain for listeners briefly the importance of carbon and a little bit about that cycle and and why it's it's such an emphasis in regenerative agriculture? Yeah, sure. Um, if you think about um, how carbon uh, works between the sort of the sky and the earth, uh, plants are the middlemen because plants through photosynthesis grab carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere and combine it with water that they pull up through their roots to make carbohydrates, sugars, the building blocks of their bodies. Um, you know, and they give off oxygen in the process, which is good for us as well. Um, but in, in building their bodies, they're grabbing carbon out of the sky. Um, and so then once it's in a plant's body, it sits there over the life of the plant, unless that plant pushes some of that carbon out of its roots into the soil, which they do. Some plants will push, you know, 30, 40% of uh, the carbon they capture from the sky out through their roots into the soil. And they do it in the form of sugars and proteins and um, you know, things we might think of as food because they're feeding microbes in the soil that do things in return for them that Ann will talk with you a lot about, but that basically when those microbes in the soil die, their bodies are rich in carbon and in nitrogen and in phosphorus and all the other micronutrients that form living things, that form uh, the constituents of the bodies of, of plants and, and, and microbes. Um, and so once that, that, that once living material that becomes dead, it's then organic matter, uh, and organic matter, um, the carbon-rich compounds that were once living, that's food for microorganisms that break that down. And particularly, uh, you know, saprophytic fungi, things that eat dead things, um, they break down that once living organic matter and reduce it to its sort of its elemental constituents and tend to transform it into forms that can be taken back up by the next generation of plants. So you can think of it as a, as a full cycle where living organisms are, are decay and recycled into the, the ingredients that are, are used to build the next generation of living things. And if, those, if the recycling function in the soil wasn't working, it wouldn't take all that long for you know, this world to be buried under dead things if nothing broke down. Um, so it's it's a good thing that that system works. Um, and now again, I've forgotten where you started with on the question. <laughs> <laughs> so we need carbon in our soils. Oh yeah. So you can think of carbon as the fuel that's feeding the microbes, that's helping to drive the back half of the circle of life, and that is helping to get mineral micronutrients out of the soil. Um, so you can you can literally think of. of sort of the organic matter content or, or the carbon content, because, you know, organic matter is roughly half carbon. So the more organic matter, the more carbon, the more carbon, the more organic matter. Um, you can literally think of the, that carbon content of the soil as sort of a measure of the biological batteries that are in the soil. If you have a lot of organic matter and a lot of life in the soil, the cycling of nutrients and nutrition and the, and the acquisition from fresh mineral particles will just be running faster because that, that the sort of the Easter, the, what, the ever-ready bunny of the soil is just going to be working that much faster. And when you run out of organic matter, you're just drawing down that battery and he's hitting, hitting the drum slower and slower and slower. So that's why biochar or terra preta um, from back in the Amazon rainforest was so effective as a way of improving soil fertility well that's that's part of it there's um because there's uh what biochar is is if you take organic matter and you combust it in a low oxygen environment it becomes charcoal 
and a lot of the volatiles are driven off of it in the process. But there's still some, and depending on what temperature you make it at and what you're making out of uh, in the first place, there can be um, elements in it that microbes can scavenge for food um, in addition to just the, the raw carbon matrix. But one of the real things that I think the biochar does in the soil isn't so much the direct fertility boost from it, um, but it's that it increases the water holding capacity of the soil. Charcoal is really good at holding water. Mm -hmm. um, and I like to think of it as, as habitat for microbes. So some of the farmers that I visited in Central America, for example, down in Costa Rica, um, were using biochar to restore fertility to their land, but they were taking the biochar and then inoculating it with a compost tea that they made from the mycorrhizal fungi that they would get from the native forest from out in the jungle. Um, and so you if you think of biochar as habitat for organisms, they were populating that habitat with, with fungi and bacteria out of the native forest, mixing with their biochar, then integrating that into their fields. And they're essentially cultivating the beneficial life in the soil um, to help break down the organic matter that they would leave on their fields and feed their next generation crop. Hmm. That's really interesting. So just to keep this, uh, I feel like we could talk on these topics forever. I really enjoyed chatting with you. Uh, is there anything else, though, that you want to cover before we sign off in regards to uh, your books or some of the history of soil and how it might relate to cannabis cultivation? Oh, boy. Well, you know, one, one thing, if you think about... Uh, how to restore soil. I haven't really seen anybody write or talk much about, about this next point, but uh, I'll just bring it up because it crossed my mind. Um, if you think about uh, how it is that uh, you would sort of boost the organic matter content of the soil, what you want to get is uh, organic biomass and fiber into the soil. And there's a parallel with the human gut that Ann will talk to you about with the, with the hidden half of nature. But if you, you know, but uh, hemp is one of the great crops for fiber. That's why we used to make rope out of it, after all. Um, and so, if we're thinking about, you know, cover crops to boost the organic matter content and fertility of soils, getting hemp into crop rotations uh, and then using, um, you know, some of that biomass um, as microbe food in soils is not a bad idea. I, my my initial thought on that, my one concern would be that your the species may be a little too closely related, and you may end up with pest problems. But I don't know of anyone oh, that's but, doing yeah, but it. What, but what? But what if you put it in cornfields and put it in soybean fields? <laughs> oh, the hemp. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, I was thinking of it as a rotation with a, a cannabis crop. No, what I would, the, I, you know, my, my recommendation, I haven't thought that, that deeply about cannabis cultivation because I don't have any experience with it, and I'm, I have a brown thumb. I can kill any plant you give me. <laughs> Anne, is the guard, Anne is the gardener in our household. She may give you better advice. But in terms of getting diversity into rotations with cannabis, I'd encourage farmers to think about, uh, if you're growing outside, think about planting other plants in between your crops. Don't leave the, bound, the ground bare. Don't let it look manicured intentionally plant what you might otherwise call weeds, pardon the pun, in between your cash crop um, in ways that would you think of as green manure. Um, and for, for indoor operations, I mean, maybe you grow a low-rise crop in the soil around the cash crop, get diversity into the soils by having mixes of low-rise crops. Um, I think that the, in terms of the pest resistance and disease resistance, it might be well worth um, experimenting with. Yeah, I see a lot of people running cover crops with their cannabis crops now. That's that's becoming more and more common. I personally... Oh, good. good. So, so it's already been thought of. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Cannabis farmers are very good at experimenting and trying new things. Uh, they're definitely oh, good, on good. the cutting edge in that regard, which is which is why it makes it so much fun. Um, that being said, I personally on indoor facilities haven't seen a lot of people pull that off on scale successfully, but I know there are people, there are people out there doing it. I worry about it as a habitat for pests and disease because we do have such a monocropping culture and we don't yeah, have, yeah. we don't have that diversity of insect life that we have outdoors because it is limited. So the pest may make it in, but that predator and other diversity may not. 
Um, well, why, why, why don't people actually like, you know, release predators inside their operations? Oh, that's a thing too. Yeah, we definitely have a lot of people doing beneficial insects. I had uh, a couple podcasts yeah. on that already. So that's another, I, I think that's the yeah. future of agriculture in a lot of ways as we move away from pesticides. Uh, yeah, the, um, the examples I've seen on sort of conventional farms that have gone to biological pest management uh, have been very successful. Um, there's a guy uh, named Jonathan Lundgren at Blue Dasher Farms in South Dakota. If any of your listeners are want to follow up on this stuff, go to his website and check out what he's been doing and the research he's been doing on alternative means of pest control. It's really impressive. But yeah, but if people are interested in, in our books, and we've got the Dirt, the Erosion of Civilizations book that I wrote, The Hidden Half of Nature that Ann and I wrote, and then Growing a Revolution, the new book about uh, regenerative agriculture. Those, you know, they're available at any bookstore. We have a website that um, is dig2grow.com, dig2grow.com. And we're active on Twitter. We're uh, at dig2grow. Um, and, you know, people can reach us via our website if they're interested. Uh, and obviously, we recommend the books. Growing Revolution was a finalist for the E.O. Wilson Literary Science Writing Prize this year. So there's a. Uh, um, They've been getting good reviews. Yeah, I'm staring at my autographed copy right now, and uh, The Hidden Half of Nature, <laughs> I got on Audible, so I can listen to it as an audiobook when I'm driving around and doing other things. So there's definitely, uh, I definitely recommend the books, and I will put all the resources up on the podcast page for listeners after the podcast goes live. So, David, I really appreciate you taking the time today to chat. I know you're busy. Uh, you're over there teaching at, well, my favorite school. So I wish you the best, and thanks again. All right, thanks, Todd. I enjoyed talking to you. Take care. That was David Montgomery, geologist, professor, and author of numerous books, notably Dirt, The Hidden Half of Nature, and Growing a Revolution, Bringing Our Soil Back to Life. You are listening to the Cannabis Cultivation and Science Podcast. I'm your host, Tad Hussey. Don't forget that there's more information and articles available on our website and blog at www.kisorganics.com, as well as links to the data and information we discussed in this episode on the podcast page. And if you enjoy these podcasts, please take a moment to leave me a rating and review on iTunes and send me your feedback and suggestions through our website contact page or tad at kissorganics.com. Thanks for listening.